This is Iron Sports, 95.9, 106.9 West Palm Beach. We're honored to have uh, legendary writer Bill Madden for the New York Daily News, um, author of the book Tom Seaver uh, that just came out. It's available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, everywhere you get your books. Uh, Bill, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports. Uh, my pleasure. So, Bill, I, I w- was able to see Tom Seaver and the Reds. I'm 50 years old, so I sort of missed that, ma- that uh, magical time with the Mets. But give, give the listeners, because some of them are you know, even younger, much younger than me, what a, a, like a Tuesday night uh, at Shea Stadium would feel with uh, Tom Seaver on the mound in 68, 69, 70, those times. Well, uh, it's funny because I, when I, as I was writing this book and talking about all of his accomplishments, I said to myself, I just realized a lot of people reading this book probably never saw Tom Seaver pitch, may have been not even born when he pitched. And so, therefore, this book may sound like a book on ancient history. To <laughs> uh, he, did, uh, he did have 231 complete games. Uh, and um, there's going to come a time when the Baseball Writers Association is going to be voting pitchers in with zero complete games. <laughs> so uh, uh, that kind of gives you a little idea as to what te- what was Seaver was all about? Uh, he's the only pitcher in his. He's one of only two pitchers in history with 300 wins, 3,000 strikeouts, and an ERA of under three. And the other pitcher was Walter Johnson, the big train from the 1920s. So, so when Seaver came along to the Mets in 1967, they had been actually they had been the worst team in baseball. Uh, and, there, and there was no argument about that. Uh, they had never had a winning season. They'd finished last just about every year of their existence. And um, when he arrived in the clubhouse in 1967, uh, he was mystified by all the talk of the writers and the stories that they were writing about, about concentrating mostly on Casey Stengel's beloved losing Mets from the early 60s. And the reason for that was because Casey was such a great quote master, and uh, and it, the writers found it very amusing that he would write to say these disparaging things about his own team. And he was succeeded by Wes Westrom, who was this dull, bland guy who um, didn't have a whole lot of uh, great quotes for the writers. And so they continued to fall back on the Casey Stengel level of losers. And Seaver saw this, and he and heard this, and he, he, was, he was, frankly, he was appalled by it. And he, and he basically said to the, he, in the middle of the clubhouse one day in 67, he kind of let it all out, and he told the writers and the players who were around at the same time, he said, you know, I'm getting sick and tired of all this lovable loser stuff that you guys write about and everybody talks about here. He says, I had nothing to do with that. I don't have, didn't, I don't want anything to do with Marvelous Marv Romberg and Rod Keneal and all these, uh, all these lovable losers, Mets of the early 60s. I've been a winner all my life and I, and I don't intend to be uh, part of a losing team now. And of course, uh, he backed it up by winning the National League Rookie of the Year that year. And he was the first really superstar Mets player. Uh, started his rookie year, and it 
never subsided from the whole time he was there. And when Seaver was on the mound, it was electric, and Shea Stadium was electric. I mean, he caught on immediately. And then, of course, two years later, in 1969, uh, the lovable losers were in the World Series and won the World Series, their first winning team in their existence. And it was all because of Seaver. And you write in your book about how you talk to Tom about he did not like the course of baseball where we saw in the World Series when Ian Snell was pulled out of a game and after like a few innings, you know, a few innings because of just the computer said so. And he was at the 100 pitch count. I mean, it said Seavers used it. His pitch count was sometimes 150. And when he was there to pitch, he's pitching nine innings and, and there better be a good reason why he's going to come out of that game. And I guess that, you know, we miss that in baseball a little bit because you do like those days when it's like when the star pitcher is going to pitch, he's going to pitch nine innings. This is his game to win or lose, and you're going to get uh, 100% effort. Yeah, in the later years of his life, uh, when he had moved out to Calistoga, California, and built himself his own vineyard out there to grow grapes and make wine, uh, he would sit out in the vineyard uh, during the day on a little uh, chair he had out in the far end of the vineyard, and he'd he'd sit there and he'd do the New York Times crossword puzzle, and he would read the San Francisco Examiner to check out the box scores. But it got to a point where he just threw his hands up in disgust when he saw one box score after another where the starting pitchers coming out of the game after five or six innings. And he just could not tolerate the way the game has changed. He just couldn't relate to it, and he couldn't tolerate it because he came from an era where pitchers prided themselves in finishing what they started. Uh, we're talking about Bob Gibson and Steve Carlton and Phil Necro and, and all the pitchers of his era. These guys were all workhorses. And uh, probably the best example I can give you of Seaver's attitude towards all of this was when he won his 300th game at Yankee Stadium in uh, 1985. And... Um, he, I asked him about his favorite memories or most important parts of that game, and he kind of shook me off, and he said, no, there was only one thing about that game that mattered most to me. And I said, what was that? He said, it was a complete game. I was determined to pitch a complete game. And not only did he pitch a complete game, but he threw 143 pitches in that game. And how old was he in that game? <laughs> and he was 39 years old at the time. <laughs> right. Um, and then you so t- that was what, yeah. that was what Tom Seaver was all about. Mm-hmm. And then, really, that '69 season. I mean, Namath is in lore of New York in terms of you know, glorified because of the the underdog beating the Colts in the Super Bowl when their chances were were slim to none. And but going into the '69 season, the Mets, as you wrote in the book, their odds to win the World Series or the pennant actually was a hundred to one. And they actually, on Seavers' back, 25-7, 2.21 ERA. She said the Cy Young was able to beat the Braves and then beat the Orioles in, in, to win the World Series, uh, uh, and a great Orioles team. Yeah, well, like I said, they had not ever had a winning season up until 1969. And so there was no reason to think that they were going to be in the World Series that year. Hence the odds makers giving them those kind of long, long, long odds. And um, uh, it was it was quite a remarkable feat when you think about the fact that not only did they perform this great, amazing deep, but they did it against two very, really good teams, the Braves of Hank Aaron 
and Eddie Matthews in that group, and of course the uh, of course the um, the Orioles, which were one of the best teams maybe of all time, that Orioles team uh, with Frank Robinson and Bill Powell and Brooks Robinson and and all of those guys on that team that are in the Hall of Fame now, and uh, they seemed invincible. Uh, and it, the way that World Series unfolded with the Mets winning these games in, in, in remarkable fashion, there was a lot of quirky things that happened in that World Series that made you think that. Uh, God was a Mets fan, as somebody said, uh, and um, so that's what made it quite remarkable. I mean, the fact that, that not only did they win, but they they did so by beating one of the greatest teams of all time, that, that 1969 Orioles team. We're talking to Bill Madden, author of the Tom Seaver book just came out. Uh, it's the most authoritative uh, book about Tom Seaver, just tremendous, uh, such insight. Um, but you talked about after they won the World Series that the legend, that's where really Tom Seaver became, you know, from Vegas all around. Because when you win it back in those days, like now you can be a superstar. You could be Kevin Durant in Oklahoma City and people are like in Golden State, Steph Curry. But back in those days to to win in New York, to be the, the best pitcher in the best city. And, and you mentioned in the book how the Mets were getting two million fans a game, whereas the Yankees only got a million. That's just that gave him uh, national fame. Well, that was the other crazy thing about the Mets because uh, when they were losing bad, badly every year under Casey Stengel, they were outdrawing the Yankees by a long shot. And it was, a, it was, a, it was, you could chalk it up to New York had a thirst for National League Baseball that uh, had not been abated since the Giants and the Dodgers left town in 1958. And um, here comes these Mets and uh, it didn't matter to the New York fans they were National League fans, and it didn't matter that the Mets were awful, but Casey Stengel made them cute and lovable. And so that's what happened there. And then, of course, um, you know, along comes Seaver, and everything changed. But it was, um, I think you mentioned the fact that Namath had kind of taken over the town with his flamboyant personality and the great, great upset win by the, uh, by the Jets over the Colts. Uh, the Mets were kind of a little different in that um, Seaver wasn't flamboyant. He was just a dominant, dominant pitcher. And, uh, of course, New York fell in love with him, and they fell in love with the Mets, uh, the winning Mets. And uh, then after the season, he, Sam and his wife Nancy were all over the place. They were on all these television shows, and they okay, they went out to Las Vegas. So it was an active or an act that all the Mets players were in out in uh, out Las Vegas, and that got a lot of attention. And Tom was on the cover of all the magazines, and uh, it suddenly became the Tom and Nancy show, which uh, brought about some jealousy on the part of his teammates. Uh, and but at the time, anyway, uh, as I wrote in the book, Camelot was back in New York, and. Instead of uh, Jack and Jackie, we had Tom and Nancy. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And then you talked about 70, 71, 72, all these great years. And then 73 gets back to the World Series. And then you, you have the situation with Gil Hodges, who was only, I think you wrote in the book, 47 years old, who was the manager of the team, uh, passed away. 
and uh, they put Yogi Bear in as a manager, and 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 you're talked about Tom's you know relationship with Yogi. We just had John Pess on a few months ago talking about the book about Yogi Bear, and certainly it covers his whole history. Uh, but uh, that was, and then at '73 in the World Series, when they're up three-two on the A's, Yogi makes some poor decisions and and cost him maybe a second World Championship. Yeah, well, it was a decision that haunted Yogi for the rest of his life. Uh, the Mets are up three to two, and uh, Seaver and John Matlack uh, were their two best pitchers. But uh, they were both. Seaver would have been on three days rest if they picked him to pitch game uh, game six. And meanwhile, you had George Stone, who had been their hottest pitcher down the stretch, and he finished with a twelve and three record that year, I think. And he won. I think he won seven or eight of his last decisions. And he was the most logical guy to put in for game six because you would still have Seaver as a backup on normal rest for game seven and Matlock in the bullpen or whatever. But Yogi was adamant that he was going to, he went for the quick kill and he pitched Seaver in game six. And Seaver didn't pitch badly. He gave up a a couple of uh, RBI doubles to Reggie Jackson. But other than that, he pitched pretty well. And then, of course, the bullpen lost the game for him. Uh, and now they're down to um, now they're down to Game Seven, and nobody even talks about the fact that Matlock got batted around pretty badly in Game Seven, and, and they blew and they lost the series. And I think a lot of people felt they should have won that series if Yogi had not made that move. If he'd come with George Stone anyway in Game Six, and he still would have had Seaver on normal rest. So Seaver's there for nine years. He's a toast to the town. He's, they called him, the, his nickname was the franchise. So that's what he was. And then you write in the book in detail. I think nobody's ever done detail like you've done on this subject um, about Don Grant, who took over the, the sort of the running of the Mets and dispute over money with Seaver and to the point where actually the franchise was, was, uh, was traded to the Reds. Uh, just very interesting in the chapters in terms of how you talked about what Don Grant did to upset Seaver and how this icon, using Dick Young, writers in the paper, everything about it was just very interesting. Yeah, well, of course, that was a, that was a very... Uh tumultuous time in New York baseball history that whole summer of 1977. And um, it all started really the year before with the advent of free agency and uh, in 1976. And Seaver made it a point. He, he was already under contract um, with the Mets. And he made it a point that he really, free agency was fine and he was glad for his fellow players that they were going to get this and he was part of the negotiating committee anyway that that won free agency for the players uh, and created this system but he said at the time he said I don't want to ever leave the Mets and that's really the way it was until he saw all these huge contracts coming down uh, by guys who were far inferior to him one of them was with Nolan Ryan and with the Angels got a huge contract and um uh, uh, so he saw these contracts coming down and he went to the Mets and he went to M. Donald Grant, who was the chairman of the Mets, and he talked to him about at least tweaking his contract or doing something to adjust it so he would get in it into where his at least some sort of equality as far as what he was making and what the free agent pitches were making that were far inferior to him. But Grant was having none of it. And at the same time, Seaver was criticizing Grant in the papers 
for, for his failure to sign any free agents to help the team get better. And so this conflict was going on for the better part of a year and a half. And it reached its climax in the summer of 77, close to the trading deadline, which was on June the 15th. Seaver was still carping away about it, about Grant and free agency and his own contract. And then Grant enlisted the services of Dick Grant, of, sorry, of Dick Young, the columnist for the New York Daily News, who happened to be my mentor. Oh, I was no. not at the news at the time. Uh, I joined the news the following year. But Young was the most powerful columnist in New York. And Young gladly took Grant's uh, invitation to start knocking Seaver and took the management side on this whole thing and wrote a series of columns calling Seaver an ingrate and greedy and a cancer on the team. And it, it got very ugly. And finally, it got to a point where Grant, where Seaver was not budging and Grant was not budging, and Grant finally threatened to trade Seaver if he didn't stop with this whole business with wanting to re- renegotiate his contract. At that point in time, Seaver decided to go over Grant's head, and he negotiated his own t- uh, two-year extension with um, Mrs. DeRolay. She was the daughter of Joan Payson, the original Mets owner. So he got this... He got his own deal, and it looked like this situation had finally become resolved and that Siva would be staying a Met. And then Young wrote one more column in which I put in the book the 33 words that effectively drove Tom Siva out of town. And those 33 words from Young's column were, quote, Nolan Ryan is getting more now than Siva, and that galls Tom because Nancy Seaver and Ruth Ryan are very friendly, and Tom Seaver has long treated Nolan Ryan like a little brother, unquote. Well, Seaver was at the pool at the Atlanta hotel where the Mets were staying. This is on June 15th. And he was sitting around the pool, and somebody brought this thick young column to him and showed it to him. He looked over the column. He got up from his chair. He went, marched across the way to his room, got on the phone, and called Joe McDonald the general manager of the Mets up in New York, and he said, get me the hell out of here. Get me out of here. I will not tolerate this. He has brought my family into this, and this is something I cannot accept. So get me out of here. And that night, Grant uh, and McDonald, they traded Seaver to the Reds, and they traded Dave Kingman, the all-time Mets home run hitter, to uh, San Diego, and they called that the Midnight Massacre. As it was, it was the darkest day in Mets history. And then he was successful in, in Cincinnati. And then you, you mentioned in the book, he like this whole love affair with the Mets. It should be like a play almost, uh, almost a Shakespearean type play because he comes back to the Mets. They bring him back for one year, but they forget to protect him in the old draft. People, instead of giving amateur draft picks, which they do now, you actually, if in the draft, if someone signed a free agent, they could take a player. And they, they brought him back for one year and then they lose him to the White Sox, which is crazy. Yeah, it was. In fact, that was when uh, my relationship with Seaver became more than just a player-writer relationship because I got tipped off to this whole thing with the the, um, the free agent compensation draft. I had a friend of mine who was working in the commissioner's office, and he gave me a call. It was two days before the draft. I was at my office at the Daily News, and he said to me, he said, are you uh, writing anything on the draft on on Friday. This guy happened to be a White Sox fan, too. 
And I said, no, I'm probably not going to write much about it because neither New York teams lost a free agent, so it's not going to be a New York story. And he said, uh, Bill, I think it might be a very big New York story. And I said, what are you talking about? He says, you're not going to believe this, but the Mets have left Seaver unprotected. I said, how do you know that? He says, well, I'm, I'm looking at the unprotected list right in front of me here, and he's not protected. And not only that, but I called the White Sox. They had the first pick in this draft. And he says, they told me they couldn't believe Seaver was unprotected either, and they're going to take him tomorrow on Friday. I said, wow, this, is, this certainly is a huge story. In fact, it turned out to be probably the biggest story I ever broke for the Daily News. But I had to get a confirmation on it, so I called Frank Cash and the general manager, and I, I got him out of a luncheon, actually, and I told him, I said, look, Frank, I'm sorry to get you out of this luncheon, but I, I have, it's come to my attention that you've left Sieber unprotected uh, in uh, Friday's compensation draft. And he was a silence on the phone, and Cash and said, well, yeah, we did. Uh, I'm not going to lie to you, Billy. We did leave him unprotected, but we didn't think anybody would be taking a 39-year-old pitcher. And I said, well, Frank, I hate to disappoint you, but the White Sox are going to take him. I've I have that on very good authority. So there's another silence on the phone, and Frank said, well, you got to write what you got to write. So I was prepared to just go with the story, but then I felt I had an obligation to Seaver to not blindside him the next day with his story because this was a traumatic event in his life. He was going to have to leave the Mets again, uproot his family, and go to Chicago, the other league with a designated hitter and everything else about it. And... um it was just, you know, I just didn't want to write this story and not at least call him for a comment and, and whatever, give him a heads up. Well, he was very appreciative that I called him, very appreciative. And um, the amazing thing about this is the story never got out. Too many people knew about it, but it, this was, you got to remember, this is not, this was a whole different era. We had no Twitter back then. We had no Facebook. We had no cell phones. We had this was a whole different era. And so we sat on the story until our last edition at one thirty in the morning went off. So, so we didn't give anybody a chance to catch up on it. And um, from that day on, I think Seaver looked at me as somewhat something, someone more than just another writer. Because when he thought about it, I guess, you know, here is this traumatic event in his life. And the commissioner's office didn't tell him he was going to be have to leave the Mets. The Mets didn't tell him he was going to have to leave the Mets. The White Sox didn't call him. I called him. And from that day on, uh, we had a different kind of a relationship. And ironically, <laughs> funny, two years later, 1986, uh, he is um, now in, in the final year of his contract with the White Sox. The White Sox are going nowhere. And he's not having a particularly good year. And he was very, he was homesick. He wanted to get back to New York. And so he asked Ken Harrelson, the White Sox general manager, if he would trade him, and if he could work out a trade to get him back to the Mets. Well, you have to remember, this is 86 now, and the Mets are on their way to a world championship, and they were loaded with pitching. They had Dwight Gooden and Ron Darling and Sid Fernandez and all these other guys. And Davey Johnson wanted no part of Seaver being brought in there. And he told Cashin that, forget about it, we don't need him. And so Cashin um, told uh, 
hawk that he hawk house, and he couldn't. They weren't going to be able to do the deal. So now, Seaver calls me. Uh, <laughs> You're his agent, probably trying to do this work to arrange this. Well, it seemed like I became his agent. He calls me and he says he explains all this to me, and he says I need a favor from you. And I said, What do you need? He said, Can you call Steinbrenner for me? <laughs> And I said, well, I guess. I said, what do you want me to tell him? He says, well, tell him I need to get back to New York for family reasons and everything else, and I would love to finish my career with the Yankees. So I said to myself, I said, well, I said to him, I said, well, I'll call him. And I said, this could probably be, work out well for you, Tom, because this is right out of George's playbook to do a to upstage the Mets while, they're, while they've taken over the town on their way to the World Series. And he... Here he could upstage him by bringing Tom Seaver back to New York a third time, only as a Yankee. But surprisingly, when I called George, he was only lukewarm to this idea. And I, I, never, I never got a satisfactory explanation from him. And all the years later, I wrote a, I wrote a book on him um, uh, back in 2010. And I wrote in the book how I asked him a few times after that, and he never gave me an answer as to why he didn't want to make the deal for Seaver. It got hung up over a shortstop named Carlos Martinez. He was a six foot six shortstop, and he was regarded as one of the Yankees' top prospects. And Harrelson had to have him in the deal, or he wouldn't do it. And Steinbrenner was telling me, oh, "I can't give up this guy. He's our best pro- prospect." I said, "George, we're talking Tom Seaver here." I, I couldn't believe this. I'm in the middle of this thing. Hawk Harrelson's trying to get me to talk Steinbrenner into this deal, and Seaver's trying to talk get me to talk him into this deal but he wouldn't budge for whatever reason and so the deal felt, the deal never went anywhere and uh, Harrelson called me that day and he said look George won't give up Martinez and I can't do it without him so I'm going to trade Seaver to the Red Sox for uh, Steve Lyons and that's what happened when you mentioned when the Mets won the World Series he was on the bench of the Red it was so sad he got hurt at that year at the end of the year and so he's sitting on the bench and he's finally seeing the Mets win the World Series but he's sitting in the Red Sox bench in that famous World Series so that was a sad way to, to actually end his career cruel irony for sure yeah there he was he was helpless to, he was helpless to do anything for them because he had he had uh, torn some cartilage in his knee uh, late in the season and uh, he had to go on the disabled list and um, he couldn't help them but he was he was sitting in the dugout and watching this, watching the Mets win this World Series in such improbable fashion in those last two games at Chase Stadium. Well, Bill, it's been a, a pleasure talking to you today. Um, you're the author of Tom Seaver. Uh, it's uh, available, I said, Barnes & Noble, uh, Amazon. Uh, you can buy it online. A great book, an easy read, and really a lot of stories about uh, just interesting stories and anybody wants to learn about Seaver who's younger or people who's, who grew up with Seaver and saw the pool he had on the city and also the country. Um, it's just a perfect book to read. So, Bill, I really appreciate you coming on Iron Sports. Okay, thanks a lot. It's Tom Seaver, A Terrific Life. A terrific, that's a great. You mentioned in your book that, uh, that when Tom Brady tried to uh, trademark terrific, Tom Terrific, that uh, Seavers was able to, and then so many people complained. Uh, what was the story? So many people complained that, they, that he didn't get, Tom Brady was not able to get the nickname Tom Terrific? Yeah, what happened is it went to court, uh, and, a, and, a, and a court ruled in, in, in uh, people on Seaver's behalf who would file this uh, complaint or whatever you want to call it. Uh, I guess it was sort of a lawsuit, but anyway, uh, 
a judge ruled that um, that the Tom terrific nickname was uh, definitely Tom Seavers, and uh, and so I, as I wrote in the book, this was his 312th last victory. <laughs> That's great. Well, thank you so much. Anybody, please read this book. It's a tremendous book. Go and get it. And Bill, I appreciate you taking some time out to talk about Tom Seaver. Thank you so much.